Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Kyle Rankin, Vice President of Engineering Operations at Final, a credit card startup. We discuss old versus new approaches to server hardening, how institutional inertia thwarts change, and the new security-minded desktop operating system called Cubes. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining me, Kyle. I'm so glad you could be on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. So start out the way I always do. How did you get into security as a career? Sure. So I started out mostly as a systems administrator. So that's been always my first love. But my second love has always been into security. You know, when I was a kid, I remember when I learned how to write batch files in DOS. So that ages me a bit. One of the first things I wanted to do was make a self-replicating virus out of that. But um, Wait, why was that one of the first things you wanted to do? I, mean, I can um, think of a lot of things one might want to do, but that I don't know if that would have jumped to mind. I mean, that was to me that just sort of seemed like an interesting thing. Probably just some of the movies that were going around back then. Uh, um, gotcha. Like I remember, my mom always told me that she never wanted to get internet access back when I lived at home because she was afraid someone would come knocking on the door one day because uh, uh, we watched, you know, watch war, war games. games, things like yep. that. Oh, yeah. classic. Okay, sorry, I totally interrupted you, but that was, carry on. <laughs> Yeah, so I just sort of started with um, that sort of thing. And then when I got into systems administration, uh, I got way more interested in the defense side of things because, uh, you know, we I started getting into Linux very early. Uh, and from, from that point, when you're just setting up servers, you sort of naturally get into, you know, hardening them, protecting them from attacks, things like that. So I have a lot of friends that are on the opposite side that are more on the offense side. But for me, I don't know. I've always sort of been interested more in defense. And so you, you're working for a company called Final now. Um, and tell, tell me a bit about what, what, what it is they do and what you're doing there. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So Final is a credit card startup. And so we have, you know, we actually went live um, with active credit cards a couple of months ago. And so it, we have like a real physical credit card you can, you know, go to a store and buy things with. The, the thing that we do that's a little different is um, right now, you know, you can use a chip when you're physically at a place and that helps protect um, your card. But when you're online, you still punch in the same number. So what we do is we allow you to generate a virtual credit card number for each merchant you want to do business with online. So say you have a Netflix number, an Amazon number, things like that. Uh, and we make it so that only your Netflix number, for instance, can only be used at Netflix. So if Netflix were ever to be compromised, um, an attacker couldn't use that number for something else. You know, they could only, I guess, buy a Netflix subscription with it. Um, and of course, hopefully we would detect that and we could turn off those numbers. So it's sort of like you can generate as many numbers as you need um, and turn them on and off as you need. Uh, so it adds a, a little extra level of security. So what uh, so I do there is I'm... It's like one password for credit cards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I've been doing the same thing with my email for, for years. Um, since I run my own mail server, I can generate, you know, unlimited email addresses. So if I do business with somebody, I just generate a, you know, a Netflix email address, et cetera. So if someone spams me, I can see where it's coming from and just turn that email address off. So sort of same thing with only for credit card numbers. God, it's one of those things where when you when you realize it, it seems so obvious. And yet it's sort of you have to really break the mold of how people have thought about this for a very long time. Yeah, really, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's kind of funny I've been, because I've been, you know, using one live for the last couple of months, and it, it's it's a different you have a different approach when you're buying something online. I was like, oh yeah, wait, I don't have to enter my regular number in; I can just make a new one for this new person I'm doing business with. But yeah, 
All right. I interrupted um, you again. So, <laughs> so you're t- about to start telling me what you actually do there. Sure. Yeah. So I'm responsible for all of the uh, server infrastructure. Um, so sort of have a, when, when I put my system in head on, that's, um, that's what I do. You know, we built out a, your sort of classic service oriented architecture in the cloud. Um, so I manage all of that. I, you know, have a DevOps component where I'm, you know, do all of the automation around both deployments and, um, testing and deploying all of our software. Um, and I also am um, one of the primary people responsible for security there. So it's, it's sort of like this best of all worlds in a way that, you know, I get to be in a fast moving startup doing, you know, new things all of the time. But because we have this strict, you know, PCI compliance standard and strict security requirements, um, we have to balance like going doing things quickly with doing things correctly, which is sort of right where I like to sit. Oh, that's great. I So, I mean, I think it's the, one of the things we're going to talk about today is server hardening. And, you know, you have, you have such this old school <laughs> sysadmin background in this sort of new, new school world. So, but talk to me a bit about your perspective on, on server hardening in terms of both sort of what you're doing, but also what you're seeing in the industry, like either best practices or things that people aren't, you know, aren't necessarily, um, dealing with properly, especially in a, in a much more sort of cloud environment? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been, you know, hardening servers for years. I, I remember back when, you know, Bastille Linux first came out and everyone was running that to, you know, set up to further harden, you know, their, their machine. And uh, sort of recently, I, as part of a PCI audit, one of the things you need to do is point to one of the approved reference docs for how you harden your servers. So I started looking around for an appropriate one and started following it. And, and part of the process is to go through the steps and justify what you are or aren't doing from the hardening guide, how it applies to your system. And what I realized is oh, this, this, this guide read as though it were written for Red Hat in 2005 or something like that. Um, and I started looking through the steps and realized, well, a lot of the steps are dated from back, you know, that long ago. And it's, it's not so much that it was all bad advice. It was just a lot of the advice was outdated and either, you know, Linux servers uh, automatically set this stuff up or, you know, or it's just not needed anymore. So I realized, you know, I've been doing this long enough that I can recognize sort of the old advice versus some of the more modern approaches. But I imagine a lot of people that are coming into this fresh, when they see those guides, I could see them spending hours going through and doing all of these little tweaks that, at the end, they wouldn't necessarily be any more secure. They wouldn't probably be less secure, but um, if they had been, you know, just a couple of minutes doing different things, um, they would be a lot better off. So wait, just so back to the guide, like sidebar on this, where did like, where did this guide come from as this was as you were going through the PCI process? So yeah, like, so there, oh, sorry, this is their um, guide. Is that, or is this something there, external? It's something external. There's a series of sort of, I guess they're called CIS benchmarks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, it's a list of for different, you know, distribution. They have different ones for different distributions of Linux. There's one for AWS and it's sort of an approved document of best practices. Except, so, except it's not, right? Like, the, I mean, I'm getting a little caught up on this, but I'm thinking, so the organization that is making sure that people are basically, especially very financially sensitive organizations, PCI compliant, is asking people to essentially uphold pretty outdated standards? Well, it's, it's, it has more to do with, like, some of those documents probably when they were written um, were 
fresh and up to date. And it, it reads like, you know, sometimes if you'll, you'll get a technical book and it's the fifth or sixth edition, mm-hmm. if the author's a good author, they have gone through and updated everything and made it current. But sometimes you'll get that sixth edition book and you can tell that they basically haven't changed anything. They added a chapter at the end or something. But the first chapters read like it read 10 years ago. Gotcha. Um, yeah, a lot of these hardening documents are like that, where the, because the, the advice wasn't bad advice, um, they just sort of left it in. So if you're reading, you know, uh, a, a Debian hardening guide or something, they'll reference things that Debian stopped using a couple of years ago. They just haven't gone through and updated the doc. Um, so yeah, it's not exactly, um, it's, it's not um, coming out of PCI directly. It's more, you have, they have to point to some sort of hardening standard for people to follow. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's weird because, like I said, a lot of the advice isn't that, well, I'll give you an example. So one of the pieces of advice they'll give you is to um, turn off Telnet. Right. Now, you know, that's not bad advice, um, but hopefully, you know, in now that we're in the 21st century, no one's you know, <laughs> yeah. relying on Telnet, you know? That's kind of painful. Um, yeah, so that's it's definitely like, a yeah, rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You should, you should totally turn off Telnet. That's good <laughs> advice, but... Um, you, I can just imagine someone going through the first, the first, you know, half of the, of one of these hardening docs is like that. So, you know, they're going through and they, and they're, what you'll realize at the end is, oh, my distribution already does all of this for me. Another one is use shadow passwords. You know, every distribution has been doing that for a decade. Uh, a lot of things like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. So it's all, they, eventually there is good advice in those hardening documents too. It's just, you have to dig to get to there. And by the time you've gotten there, you know, you've spent hours on all of this other stuff. It sounds like you have another side project somewhere, <laughs> right? You're going to be the guy who updates all that. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So, but anyways, you're, you're going back to, uh, so folks who come across these are running into potentially, you know, not necessarily wrong information, but a lot of weeds to go through, uh, in, in dealing with that. Right. And then the other thing people will do then is say, okay, well, I'm sort of in the weeds with this stuff. Let me look online for a lot of, you know, hardening advice. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's just, it's a mixed bag whenever you look online for, you know, you'll end up with random forum posts from people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, it's a mixed bag for anything. Uh, so. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's just a couple, to me, there's just a couple of, you know, when you're looking before you kind of talk about specific things that people should do. To me, there's a couple of things that when you're evaluating advice in general for security things to avoid. So, you know, one thing that one thing is you often hear avoid obscurity, you know, security by obscurity. Yet you'll see a lot of people even in the modern day will recommend things like, well, if you don't want SSH to get hacked, you change the port to something other than the default port and things like that. Uh, um, yeah, you still see those guys. I mean, today, I, I it, it's funny. I gave a talk on the subject recently and I started talking about some of these things that I recommend people avoid. And I could tell some people in the audience, you know, either felt bad because they were doing it or felt angry um, because they were <laughs> because doing you're it. Because you're saying don't do that. Yeah. Like that's one. The other one I really don't like that's probably the most controversial is I'm not a fan of uh, the script fail to ban, uh, mm-hmm. which is a script that reads, you know, firewall rules. And if someone has too many failed attempts um, at logging into SSH, uh, the, the idea is it will block that IP. It will add a firewall rule and block that IP. And on the surface, it seems you know perfectly reasonable. I don't, I don't want someone to brute force uh, my SSH password. So um, let's turn the system on. But the the problem is is that that protects you against sort of the the attacker that hasn't figured out how to get a botnet yet. Right. Uh, 
but anyone who has more than one server they're attacking from is is smart enough now to launch attacks, you know, spread them out across all of the servers in their botnet. So it gives you like a like changing the port to twenty two twenty two because no one would ever guess that. Um, it it just gives you a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. So in you know how how much of this do you think is is this a really pervasive issue in in the industry of 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 how well people are handling really basic server hardening stuff, or do you think there's just little exam like little examples of that scattered around it's not not like a massive problem um i think i mean in some cases i think it's to me what's a pretty big problem is there's a lot of outdated approaches uh that you know just haven't been brought up to date recently so probably the prime example is everyone the a big way that a lot of linux servers get compromised is someone guessing an ssh password by brute force attacking um if you were to just put a random linux server on your home internet connection right now and didn't have a really strong password, there's a good chance that it would, I mean, you would immediately see these attacks because there's just, you know, there's bots all over the internet scanning and, and trying brute force attacks. So a lot of people will do all of those um, measures I talked about before, but to me, it's a lot simpler to just turn off password authentication completely and use keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more secure in a number of ways. You can, you know, even password protect your keys, things like that. It's relatively, it's a relatively simple practice and it completely removes that class of attacks. You know, you don't have to worry about SSH brute force attacks anymore if you turn on keys. You can ignore all of those, you know, firewall log attempts of people trying to break in with passwords because you know it won't work. Um, but so what, be what are the barriers you're seeing to people doing that? Uh, well, it's just a couple of things. I think the biggest barrier is inertia. If you go to a lot mm-hmm. of orgs that have, that have had systems around for a while, getting everyone to generate an SSH key and and use it is one big thing. Another thing is a lot of orgs, you know, they have all these other security practices like sharing group accounts, for instance. You know, all of the oh. developers, for instance, may have one role account called developer or something on all machines and they and they just share the password. That's painful. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's tons of that out there. And what, what ends up happening, I think you, what I've run into, at least just talking with some of my peers, is you have individual pockets of people in the org that know the right thing to do and are frustrated that they're not allowed to do the approach. But it's a lot of times it sounds like it's political. You have mm-hmm. the decision makers are, are, you know, there seems to be sort of two classes of security person. There's, there are the people that sort of, that understand could explain to you why, um, SSH keys are a better solution or could talk through password requirements and talk about, you know, what makes a good password and understand why. And then there's people that have memorized a, a set of best practices from some age whenever they started their job. Um, but they may not understand necessarily why. And so you'll see that a lot. For example, I run into this a lot because I'm, I'm not a fan of password rotation. Mm-hmm. So in, in, Fortunately, it looks like a it looks like a lot of popular opinions going in that direction now. Which yeah, is good. yeah, but, definitely. But you'll see a lot of orgs that you know dictate password rotation, and they will demand it as a best practice, um, even though there's a lot of research that shows it's not. And so, if you're someone that's in that org and you're not the decision maker, then you know you end up with things like that. It's the same thing, like um, disabling root um, SSH logins. That's another really easy thing that people can do. It takes you know it's just one line in a config file. Uh, everyone should be logging in as themselves anyway, and then using tools like sudo to raise to you know get root privileges. But a lot right. of places still don't either, just for convenience, 
a lot of times, or they just have legacy systems that say, there's, there's just a lot, to me, the biggest thing is inertia. There's just a lot of legacy systems out there, and it's a lot of work to, to update them. It's legacy human systems, not just legacy technical systems. So yeah, there's a lot of, yeah. a lot of cultural gravity towards, uh, towards the old there. Um, so, well, let's flip that on, on its head and talk about the opposite, which is, uh, you know, much more fast moving modern companies and cloud. It, what, what kinds of mindsets or approaches or changes do you need to, you know, server hardening when you, well, I mean, quite honestly, in many cases, they may or may not be your servers. Um, we can, we can get to that in a minute, even with serverless stuff. But, um, you know, what are you seeing people's mindsets need to shift or practices changing in terms of, of server hardening when you're talking about cloud environments? Well, when you're talking about cloud, a lot of, there's a, there's a couple of things. A lot of people, it, in a good way, it forces you to start using automation, in particular, if you're, if your servers are more disposable. And that has a big security gain. If you're, if you're moving the cloud, and in particular, if you're relying on, say, like centralized config management, like, you know, Puppet or Chef or Salt or something like that, mm-hmm. then, then you already have a central place that's enforcing your policies. Right. Uh, but a lot of people still sort of still take a, a more traditional approach to even when they're deploying servers in the cloud. So, you know, back in their office, they would create a, you know, back in the day, a ghost image, the, the same stuff, different technology names, but you create an image of your server and just crank it out multiple times. And that's a lot of people's approach to the cloud is the same thing, same way. They have AMIs mm-hmm. out there that they have, they have a lot of their custom stuff on there. And that, that's not necessarily bad. Um, but from an upkeep standpoint, at least in my mind, if you have a secure approach to doing config management and, a, and you can manage your secrets in config management well, then you can deal with the fact that you have these sort of somewhat ephemeral servers that um, are short-lived, relatively short-lived, or at least disposable, but you know that they are all conforming to your policy. Right. So, let I me mean, let's talk about that because as some, I'm not you know a security professional, but as somebody who's kind of come come a lot of the time, I spend talking to people about many of the other things you're discussing in terms of automation and and tools and technologies like Chef and Puppet and that kind of thing. Um, it feels natural to me that that actually gives you um, better better options for how you secure your servers and your organization, your data. Um, but that, that the prevailing opinion, it seems to me from folks who are going, who are not starting from that posture, but are moving to that is still, there's a lot of paranoia and, uh, and misinformation about, uh, cloud security. Um, so can you talk a little bit more detail about that piece of it? you you know, that you just referenced in terms of, you know, sort of automation, configuration management, um, you know, the ephemeral nature probably freaks a lot of people out. Uh, and so can you yeah. talk a bit more about why that's actually a positive? Yeah, well, so that freaks people out. And the other thing is a lot of people are, have operated under what I would think is a mistaken assumption that their internal network was secure already. And there's been, you know, for right. decades, a big focus on the perimeter. Um, and then yeah. someone's internal workstation gets popped and it's, it's game over. Uh, the, the cloud sort of forces you to start with the assumption that the that the perimeter network isn't the only network to be concerned about, that right. you also have to question the internal network. Um, so if you start with that assumption and you start with the, the expectation that the network's somewhat hostile, then it you start baking in better practices. You start, for instance, using a lot of orgs will just use TLS externally and won't use it internally. But in the cloud, that's particularly important because if you don't have your security group rules, for instance, set up correctly, you could have 
some hostile actor pretend to be one of your servers potentially. But if and you then use TLS, on. yep, exactly, yeah. If but if you if one, if you use TLS for all of your communication, one, you know it's encrypted, which is nice. But more importantly, you can authenticate the server and client to each other. So that I know when I'm talking to something else in the cloud, I'm talking directly to that server and not someone in between. Mm-hmm. And and talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, about the secret management side of things, um, because I feel like that's that is particularly um, I wouldn't say it's not like bleeding edge per se, um, but I think there's some really interesting stuff going on there. And it strikes me as, again, a very you know sort of newfound intuitive way to, to deal with this. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different sort of cloud approaches that in particular for using a using containers that allow you to have secrets in a more centralized place and then all the hosts sort of will query that. I'm I'm a little more old school in my approach to that. I rely on so I use Puppet for my configuration management and there's a plugin um, called Hyra GPG that allows you to encrypt uh, secrets essentially and check them in the Puppet. So since I have it all checked in the configuration management, it allows me to GPG encrypt uh, all any sort of passwords or other secrets so that only the the assistance administrators that's on the team and that particular puppet master can decrypt them. Um, so that way I can feel pretty confident in shipping, in checking in secrets into Git even and pushing them because they're checked in in an encrypted form. And I also can feel confident sharing the same puppet uh, configuration between development and prod because the production secrets are encrypted against the production server's GPG keys. And dev against dev. So I know that even if you were to compromise dev, you wouldn't be able to access production secrets. Right. So we just threw around a lot of uh, possibly buzzwordy kinds of things. Um, I know we've had uh, we've had automation, modern configuration management, containers. Like so, we were just talking about cultural <laughs> barriers to you know adopting certain better practices and more modern practices. Uh, then you're now you're throwing on top of that a lot of things that completely freak out organizations that are trying to potentially move in that direction. Like, what kinds of do you have you seen some success stories or do you have recommendations for people um, at older, you know, more, you know, maybe legacy organizations trying to kind of move in this direction? Like, what are some of the first steps you've seen a company take? to move in that direction without just, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just like, you know, all containers all day long? Like, is what are, what's, what might that path look like? Well, probably to me, I would start with some level of configuration management because it's, it's easier for a more classic uh, org of, of systems administrators to wrap their head around that and to deploy that because it's not an all or nothing situation. When you're talking containers, you sort of have to change your entire ecosystem in many ways to get it to work well. But if you're talking about configuration management, there's no requirement that your, your configuration management uh, tools deploy everything. So you can make it something as simple as I use this to deploy my um, SSH authorized keys or even better, my SSH config. So we're talking about, you know, it's really easy to, to lock lock down your SSH config with a couple of options. But the pain is, how do I go to every single server and make sure they all have the right config in place? Right. So, you know, some, it's, it's relatively easy to get started by saying, OK, well, I'm just managing a couple of files on these servers that have some kind of security interest to me. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so one other thing I, w- I wanted to bring up, I mean, we've been talking a lot about servers and that whole perspective, but you just started playing around with something else. I think you've been, you know, I don't know if personally, but also at final, you've been working with this new desktop 
OS called Cubes. Yeah, then, I go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm I, I'm gonna you run with it because I I've seen um a, a smidgen about this um and I'm not terribly familiar with them. So I would love it if you could talk a bit about that and what what motivated you to to start checking that out and start using it yourself. Sure. Yeah. So um so I heard about cubes you know a, a year or two ago. Um, just a, a a peer told me about it and I you know sort of heard about what it was, which is essentially a way to isolate. Um, divide sort of what you do on your workstation into a bunch of different VMs. I have, you know, some friends in security that have been doing that the hard way for a long time where they, you know, if I, if they wanted to go to a bank, their bank website, for instance, they would fire up a VM specifically for that purpose. But, um, so it's kind of back to that original idea we were just talking about in terms of like what, what final is doing, what you've done with your own email server. It's, but from, from a desktop perspective. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I started using it personally because um, I got uh, I had been following. I reviewed. Uh, there's this uh, hardware startup called Purism that's creating these open source hardware laptops uh, that have some interesting security features. And one of them was that they shipped with cubes by default uh, already installed. Because one of the big challenges when you're with cubes is because it really heavily relies on virtualization features of your processor. You have to have well supported hardware for it to work well. And so that's one of the big hurdles. It sort of takes me back to the old days of Linux, where you'd have to have install tests to help have people help you get it set up. Um, if it works, if it if, so, in any case, um, I started using it personally and really quickly saw how powerful it would be for my work use. So, for instance, at work, uh, what it allows me to do is uh, they really they allow you to really tightly segment different VMs for different purposes and colorize them. So what what makes that nice is that you have one instead of having a bunch of small windows that are all different versions of a Linux desktop or something, it's just the application window you see. So it, it feels and acts a lot like a regular Linux desktop. The difference is I may I may have three different browser windows open at one time and the borders around those windows may be red or green or blue, depending on how much I trust that DM. So for instance, I have an untrusted DM that has no personal files on it. And it just, I just use it for everyday web routes. So if someone were to send me a link to look at, I would click on it and open it in my untrusted web browser. And because there's no personal files in that browser, if some, for some reason it were a malicious link, there's nothing for it to to compromise. It's just a VM. And if I ever suspected it were compromised, it's relatively easy to just turn it off, erase it and, and create it again. Um, Along those lines, Cubes also has the notion of a disposable VM. So it's funny, it kind of maps into something we do at Final. We have one-time use credit card numbers for the same thing. If you're going to do some, if you're buying something from a place that you don't necessarily trust, you could create a one-time use card and once you use it, it can't be used again. Same thing with a disposable VM. You can create a VM. If I want to, for example, if someone sends me a PDF right now, Cubes makes it really easy to integrate this into an email client. So if this, you send me a, a PDF attachment, I can automatically open it in a disposable VM. And so if that PDF were malicious, it just compromises that, that temporary VM. And when I close the window, everything's erased. So it's allowed me to really calm down a little bit as far as my operational security on my desk, desktop. Because otherwise, in the past, I would sit there sometimes if something looks sketchy and well, look through email headers and do all of this mm-hmm. crazy stuff. And, yeah. Now I, I I'm still careful, but I don't have to be as careful because I have these countermeasures. But the particularly nice thing about work is that it allows me to a couple of things. They have a vault VM by default that you can store GPG keys in that has no mm-hmm. network access, 
and ways to access that in a secure way. But better for me at work is I can segment my production and development environments into completely different VMs that have different colors. And so my production VPN um, can be is one VM that has the production VPN credentials, same with dev, and then my dev and production VMs that I do my work in are connected to those. So I can be one, I can, in the cloud, it's sometimes if you're in, in a VPN, you end up hopping VPNs a lot because, for example, in AWS, we have different um, accounts for production and development, which mm-hmm. I would recommend as the best practice. But the end result is we the IP space for both of those networks is identical. So you can't, traditionally, you couldn't be on both in both environments at the same time. Same time. So right. something like this, I can hop around um, and be in both at the same time. And then because the windows are colorized, I can be careful about, I get a visual subconscious cue to uh, tell me whether or not I should, you know, I'm in production now because of the color of the window. So I don't accidentally, you know, paste in development secrets into production or vice versa. Interesting. And I mean, have you seen, what do you feel like the adoption of this is? I mean, is this, are there four of you? <laughs> like, what, What's the scale <laughs> of people using this right now? Well, before before the last year, I think it was more that case. It was the adoption was was pretty low, but it, over the last year, they they've had a, a a pretty big focus on usability. That sort of hit this stride where the before this, a lot of the management of all these things were via command line commands. Which you know, mm-hmm. some people you know, I hey, I love command line, but a lot of people, I mean, including myself for desktop work, could get turned off by that a little bit. So. Over the last year, they have a lot of, they put a lot of work into GUI management of a lot of these things to make it more seamless. So it's, it's definitely a learning curve. Um, in my opinion, and some disagree with me, I would still say it's still more of a power user kind of thing, yeah. but the installation itself is not difficult. Um, as, as long as your hardware works, if your hardware supported, um, installation is as easy as any other, other Linux distribution. It's just, you have, it, you, it forces you to, when you use the desktop to kind of think about how you want to isolate your your files and settings and secrets and things like that uh, into different VMs, and then think about you know how you how you slice that sort of thing up. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. So okay, so we're at the end here, and the thing I do at the end of every podcast is this is the final question. Um, a lot of the the work that you and other security professionals do, especially on the defensive side, tends to happen in the shadows, as it were. Uh, you don't get written up in wire if you're just doing your server hardening properly. Um, but we think it's incredibly important work, and we're trying to shine a light on that. So one of the things that I believe is everybody has some kind of superpower, a security superpower. And I'm curious what your superpower is. <laughs> uh- Probably automating myself out of a job. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that hasn't happened yet, though, right? Uh, It hasn't happened yet for this job, no. But my my last three, it did one way or the other, which is, in a way, it's a good thing. Um, But if you get automation to a certain point, if you do it correctly, where you you you've done it once correctly and then it's locked into place, whether that's you know not security related or security related, you, you. have the secure configuration and then it's it's done you know it's it's locked in stone mm-hmm. um yeah i, I would like, say the superpower is automation i feel like automation though is um i, I don't know I, I don't have a good metaphor for this yet but to me it just seems like a better way of picking up rocks and then once you pick up that rock you realize there's so much more under that rock and it's you know it's sort of this like you know it's all rocks or turtles but uh, you know i you may, I don't know if you may, you may have automated yourself out of a job, but I, my experience with this thus far 
is that getting good automation in place, un, you know, sort of un, it unbinds you from other things. And, and, and the, but then sometimes those can become almost these, it's never ending in a way. I mean, there's always going to be something else that you can figure out or start diving into or, um, you know, I, I don't know. So I, I think it's an interesting perspective that it will auto, you know, kill people's jobs. But so far, I haven't seen too much of that yet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm obviously exaggerating a little bit, but, but yeah, it's what it does for me is I just to continue with the rock metaphor a little bit. I think of it sort of like you start laying down this foundation in particular with configuration management, where you have this foundation of completed work that you know is correct because you only had to do it once and lock it into config management. And then you can move on to the next thing, whatever that next thing is. And then. You know, the next time you need to create a server of a certain type, you know that it's going to identically match the previous one because it's all locked in stone. So you don't have to, you can focus like you were talking about, you can focus on other things as they come your way instead of re- doing the same repeated work over and over again. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so you are, you're the, you're the automator. That's your superpower, thusly granted. <laughs> so, well, thanks for joining me today, Kyle. This is great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Kyle is at Kyle Rankin. If you liked the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 